observing, which we celebrate as Christians today, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell us that on Palm Sunday that Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem on a donkey coming down from the Mount of Olives. And here's a picture. Uh, the perspective is from the Mount of Olives looking down uh, upon the Kidron Valley and then the old city of Jerusalem with the uh, golden dome that stands there today off in the distance. And what we know from Scripture is that Jesus would ride down a road here uh, from, from the Mount of Olives that people are going to line the streets. They're going to lay down their cloaks. They're going to wave their palm branches saying, Hosanna. You know, they are ready to make Jesus uh, the king. And what we know chronologically from Passion Week is that Jesus will spend much of his week in and out of the city, that there'll be times of teachings and meeting with people. Finally, on Thursday, he'll meet in the upper room with his disciples where they'll celebrate the Last Supper together somewhere over here in this portion of the city. That evening, they're going to come back out of the city to the Garden of Gethsemane, which is over here to the right of the picture, where Jesus will spend time in prayer. It'll be there that he's arrested. And we know that through the rest of the night and even early into Friday morning that he will be beaten, he'll be tried, and ultimately he'll be crucified on a cross, uh, you know, a, a horrible, awful act, as awful as the crucifixion was. We call it Good Friday, and uh, as it marks the day that Jesus Christ willingly gave his life uh, for you and me. We're going to observe Good Friday this week, and we'd love to have you here for one of our services. We'll be at 630 at both campuses. Uh, you can join us on Friday evening for just a nice quiet uh, service together, a good time of reflection. We'll celebrate communion together. And then next weekend, we're going to celebrate our risen Savior, Jesus Christ, on Saturday at 4.30, uh, and then on Sunday at 9 and 10.30. Those are identical services. We would love for you to come. I hope you'll be thinking about somebody in your life, uh, maybe a friend, maybe somebody that you haven't seen in a while that you might invite you to join you uh, for services. But if you've got your Bible today, I want to invite you to take it and turn to John chapter 6. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, we'll have the verses here on the screen. If you use an online Bible, again, John chapter 6. Instead of looking at the traditional Palm Sunday events today, we're going to continue in our study of John, looking at an important conversation that Jesus had in the last half of John chapter 6. But the interesting thing about this conversation is that it really serves as a foreshadowing of the events that took place during that first Holy Week almost 2,000 years ago. Now, before we get into the details of the conversation, I want to do a quick review first, because two weeks ago, we started in John chapter 6, and we watched Jesus feed a large crowd of people with five loaves of bread and two fish. Now, why was there a crowd? Well, John records for us. All right, in John chapter 6, verse 2, he says, And a great crowd of people followed him, followed Jesus, because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. And a few verses later, John tells us that this crowd consisted of 5,000 men. Add women and children to that number, and you've easily, scholars say, you've got a crowd of fifteen to 20,000 people. The point is that people were coming from everywhere uh, to hear Jesus teach. His popularity was increasing. People were hoping to be healed by him. By verse 15, the people were ready to crown him king, but there's one important detail that John records in verse 4 that I want to mention. We, we highlighted this briefly a couple of weeks ago, but we really didn't get into it. Look what John says in John chapter 6, verse 4. He says, the Jewish Passover festival was near. Now, John's note provides an important time stamp 
in the life and the ministry of Jesus. Because what we know is that he is now two and a half years into his public ministry. And in a matter of days, Jesus, like many from this crowd, all right, that he fed, are going to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration, but not for the final time, not yet at least. What we know is that it will now be one year before Jesus will go to Jerusalem one last time for that final holy or passion week when he'll ultimately be crucified. But what I want to say is this, it's just ironic because the people that love him right now are ready to make him king on that Palm Sunday, a little over a year from now from Jesus, they'll gather again, they'll wave their palm branches, they'll shout Hosanna, again, ready to crown him king. But by the end of that week, many are going to turn on him and demand that he be crucified like a criminal. What happened? Like, what, what happened? Like, how did the people in such a short amount of time turn on him? Well, part of the answer is found in this, let's say, long, deep follow-up conversation that is really the rest of chapter 6, this conversation that Jesus had with many of those that had come had been fed as a part of this miraculous meal, this meal that Jesus hosted on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. We're going to look at some of these verses today. Let's pick it up in John chapter 6, verse 22. Look what John says. He says, the next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but they had gone away alone, all right? And then we read this, verse 24. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got back into their boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus, all right? So here's what's happening in John chapter 6. Got a map uh, to kind of illustrate this for you. This being the Sea of Galilee, Capernaum kind of home base for the disciples. At the beginning of John chapter 6, Jesus and his disciples are in Capernaum, but they're going to make this trip over to the far east side of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus will feed the 5,000 in the early part of of verse 6, but then the disciples are going to leave later that evening, and as Steve talked about last week, they're going to cross back over the Sea of Galilee where they're going to get caught in a storm. Jesus is going to show up at night. John says the next day they're back in Capernaum, all right, and here comes the crowd of people once again, all right, and so this is the setting for the interaction that Jesus is going to have with this crowd, verse 25, all right, it says, we, when, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi or teacher, when did you get here? Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because, because you ate your loaves, all right, and had you're filled. Now, we've said this before, but the purpose of a sign is to point us in a direction, right? All right, John, John records these signs, these miraculous signs to point to Jesus, all right? He wants us to see Jesus, all right? He wants the people, all right, who are reading and listening to these stories to, to see Jesus for ourselves, that he indeed is God's promised Messiah. But here we find Jesus kind of calling out the crowd for ignoring these very signs. Like, he, he, they just want more bread, Right, they're just hungry for, for more to eat. Jesus continues in verse 27. He says, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. It's not a surprise to see what Jesus is doing here. Like the people are focused on getting more bread. 
Uh, they're focused on more physical bread, the kind that, that nourishes uh, our, the body. Jesus, but Jesus wants to get them thinking about a different kind of bread. Uh, the, the bottom line is here is he's thinking about a, a type of bread that nourishes the soul. And look at their response. Verse 28, it says, Then they asked him, What must we do to do the works God requires? Basically, okay, Jesus, we get it. We're following you. Like, it's a different kind of bread. You've got something else in mind. What must we do? Like, they think they're on the same page with him, but are they really? No, they just can't see it yet. Because Jesus is trying to tell them how he has come to offer a, a different kind of food, a spiritual food, if you would, something that satisfies our souls, a bread that ultimately leads to eternal life. All they could focus, though, was on the working part. Notice that word work, you know, this working part. Their, their current belief system led them to believe that, that you got you to work for that. Uh, you you got to do your part. Like that when it comes to things like pleasing God and, and satisfaction and significance, like that's on you. You've got to make the effort. You've got to find your own way. Do you ever find yourself wrestling with similar questions? Do you ever interact with anyone uh, that are asking questions like, you know, what, what, what must I do to please God? You know, what, what, what must I do to make right what I've done wrong in my life? What, what do I got to do to make, make sense of any of this or all of this? Like, how, how do I live a, a satisfying sort of life in this world? Like, we all ask questions like that, right? I hope we do. I do. You know, we ask questions like that all the time. Christian or not, you don't have to be a Christian to wrestle with these kinds of questions. Questions like, what's the point of life? <clears throat> Excuse me, what's the point of life? How do, I, how do I fill the emptiness? Like, what do I do to, to what do I got to do to be happy? How to make sense of all of this? What do I need to do to be satisfied? My family spent a week <clears throat> in Oregon for spring break. State number 44, all right, for our kids, all right, that's what we're after. And I know all of you are probably wondering if we packed a suitcase full of food for our trip. We didn't, just a carry-on bag this time, actually. In fact, here we are uh, at Chicago O'Hare Airport enjoying a smorgasbord uh, full of snacks that Jenny had packed. And you can see how excited my sons Luke and Joel are uh, about our lunch and about our layover at O'Hare uh, but don't worry, we ate out a bunch too, all right? We ate out plenty. But we had a great time, lots of, of hiking and, and waterfalls. Uh, in Oregon, it's a beautiful state. We went to a track meet uh, at the University of Oregon, Hayward Field, uh, just a cool place to see a, uh, see a meet. We spent our final day in Portland and uh, exploring the, the downtown of Portland for a few hours. Now, Portland is a beautiful city with a lot of really great people and I'll just tell you, a lot of interesting, uh, creative people, too. If you've been there before, you know it's not the Midwest, all right? Things change a little bit, you know, when you pass the Mississippi River, maybe. But lots of freedom, certainly lots of expression. i got to be honest, I had to check my heart a little bit. Even as I was thinking about this this past week, I, I realized how ugly my heart can get and how quickly I can judge people. Uh, based on an outward appearance. And as I was thinking about my experience from this past week and even some of the people that I encountered on my trip, I realized that they're not much different 
than many of you, many of us, when it comes to the questions that we all wrestle with. Isn't it true we're all just trying to figure out life? We all wrestle with questions like, is there a God? What does he require? How do I fit in? How do I make sense? How do I fill the void? Does anything at all in this world really satisfy? Honestly, that's what these people in John chapter 6 we're thinking about, too, this is what they're processing. They've got similar questions uh, of their own. Thankfully, though, for the people in John chapter 6, Jesus provided an answer to their questions and yours and mine as well. Get your pen ready. You might want to write this down in case you're wondering what that answer is. Jesus answered them, the work of God is this. Another way of saying it is, here's what God wants. Here's what he desires from each of you. What is it? Go to church every week, right? Be a, a really good person. Be generous with your money. Do lots of community service. Do what makes you happy. Be your true self, right? Is that what Jesus is after? Nope, none of that. Here's what Jesus says God wants for each of us. He says, my desire is for you to believe in the one that God has sent. Let me say it again. God's desire for you and for me and for these people here in John chapter 6 is to believe in the one he has sent. In other words, the way we know that God accepts us, the way we know that our sins are forgiven, the way we can experience and enjoy life today and for all eternity, the way to fill the void and the emptiness of life, the only way to live a life that really matters is to believe in the one that God has sent. Now, this should lead us to ask, who's the one? Well, it's Jesus, right? We're in church. The answer is always Jesus, all right? But the answer, it is, it's, it's Jesus Christ. And it's obvious to us, all right? But maybe not so much 2,000 years ago. Remember, that was part of the reason why John wrote his gospel. Again, kind of the thesis statement for John is John chapter 20, verse 31, where John says, it's my desire for you that you would believe and keep on believing, that you would believe, that you would study these things, that you would know them in your own heart, and that your faith would grow because of them. See, Jesus is the reason. He is the reason. He's the, the message behind the multiplication of food. But with this miracle, again, God wasn't just showing off, all right? He, he didn't just think it'd be kind of convenient or fun to provide a meal or dinner for these people. No, he's pointing to Jesus, all right? This miracle is God's way of shouting, it's him. He is the one. He's the answer. He is the one that you have always been searching for. But apparently the crowd wasn't picking up on the cues because listen to their response to Jesus in verse 30. They asked him, Jesus, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do for us? Now, you know, Jesus had to be thinking, sign? Like, like you need another sign? Like, what, what do you think that fish fry and unlimited bread thing was all about, you know, on the shore of the Sea of Galilee? But but to their credit, the people explain. Look at verse 31. It says, our ancestors, they said, ate manna, was a bread-like substance in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now, just in case you aren't familiar with the reference here, it comes from the Old Testament book of Exodus, all right? When God called a man named Moses to lead the Israelites out of slavery into the promised land, and Exodus chapter 16 records a story where God made this promise to Moses. It comes out of Exodus chapter 16, verse 4. You know, basically God saying, Moses, I know you're out in the wilderness with all these people, and there's no place to find food. So the Lord 
Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you, and the people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. And if you keep reading later on in verse 35, you learn that God provided manna. He provided this bread-like substance six days a week for the next 40 years. So he provided, and the people consumed it. And so in John chapter 6, when the people asked Jesus for another sign, they're thinking about their ancestors in the book of Exodus, Exodus 16, where for 40 years, God miraculously provided manna from heaven to physically sustain them on their journey. And for generations since then, rabbis had taught that when the Messiah finally appeared, that he would duplicate the miracle of manna from heaven. So in referencing Exodus 16, they're just investigating. They want to see if they can get Jesus to pro prove he's the Messiah by making manna from heaven fall down on a daily basis. Sounds a little weird to us, sounds a little strange, but I think you can see their point. And look at how Jesus responds to them, verse 32. He said to them, Very truly I tell you, it's not Moses who has given you bread from heaven. That's a clear distinction. Where's that bread coming from? God. God is providing the bread. He says, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Jesus has their attention. They realize there's more going on here than just physical bread. And I think you can appreciate their excitement too. Again, they just witnessed this huge miracle. And now Jesus is claiming to have access to a bread from heaven, something that will bring life to their lives and to the world. And their response, well, it appears of, yes, Jesus, that's the bread we're talking about. That's the bread that we're looking for, the bread that God provided six days a week for 40 years. That's the bread we want again. That's the bread we've been waiting for. Give us that bread. And then look at what Jesus says to them. It's really the key of this entire chapter. Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. The people wanted bread, and Jesus said, I am the bread. I am the bread of life. Put yourself in their shoes for a moment. In the last 24 hours, these people experienced a miracle, all right? They were ready to jump on board, crowdfund this little Panera bread experiment with Jesus as the baker, and Jesus throws them a curveball and says, no, I'm the bread. It's his way of saying, I'm what you need. I'm the one you need. In fact, I'm the answer to your questions. I'm the answer to your greatest longings and difficulties. I am the one that can only, the only one that can truly satisfy. And it's fair to say that some were more than a little confused, and honestly, maybe a little confusing for us too, because what in the world does Jesus mean by I am the bread of life? By the way, this is the first of seven I am statements that Jesus will make in John's gospel that John records. And each I am statement points to a specific role that Jesus claims to be able to fulfill for us 
uh, both spiritually and eternally. And so when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, he wants the people to understand that he's so much more than a miracle worker, uh, that he's so much more than a genie in a bottle for us, that he, he has come to satisfy us in ways that no one else can, that, that Jesus is the answer to all of our deepest longings and needs. Most importantly, he came to help us discover peace and life with God. And speaking of God, it's also worth noting that with these seven I am statements that uh, Jesus is claiming to be God with each of them. Like you have to go all the way back to Exodus chapter 3. There's this instance with Moses and the burning bush. Moses asks God about his name. What should I call you? God responds to Moses, I am. That's my name. That's all you need to know. Which again sounds a little weird to us, but from that point forward in the scriptures, I am. The English translation was used for the name of God. And so that's what Jesus does here. And uh, I like how Pastor Kyle Eidelman explains, like when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, he's not just the bread of life, but Jesus is also saying, I am, I am God, I am Yahweh, the bread of life. And now this crowd of people that are ready to crown Jesus king, they got a decision to make. Will they listen to Jesus? Will they respond to Jesus? Or will they reject him? Look at what happens, verse 41. It says, at this, the Jews there began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, isn't this not the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? Like, how can he now say, I came down from heaven? Parents, I think you can relate to something like this, can't you, if you've put in a long day? All right, you come home and you put food on the table for your kid and they look at it and go, yuck, like what is it? Like I'm, I'm not going to touch that, like I need something else. Like how many of you have ever had a real special moment like that with one of your kids? Yes, right, we all have. Jesus wasn't a parent, but he knows your pain because the same crowd that he just fed with physical bread the day before, well, it just say they're not as eager to respond to his claim about being the bread of life. But in spite of their complaining, Jesus makes yet another attempt to explain what he means. Verse 47, he says, Very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, yes, but they eventually died. And so look at what Jesus does. Again, he explains one more time. The people grumble. He explains again, I'm the bread of life. I'm the one you're searching for. Believe in me. Put your faith in me. And he references this story of the manna in the wilderness. But again, he says, look, your ancestors ate that manna, but they all died, which is bad news if you put your hope in something like physical bread. But this is where Jesus goes on once again to repeat the good news for them. Verse 50, he says, but here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. He says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Note the words, anyone. Jesus says, whoever eats this bread will live forever. Do you see the difference? Again, these people came looking for physical bread, bread that's good for a day. But now Jesus claims to be bread, the bread of life, bread sent by God, bread with the power to sustain their souls now, but for all of eternity. And he doesn't stop there. 
He continues, verse 51, the bread is my flesh, which I will give, I will give for the life of the world. What does Jesus know? He knows that in a little over a year, he's going to lay down his life. He, he knows the cross is before him. Again, he knows in a little over a year, he will make one last trip to Jerusalem. And because he's not willing to be the kind of king they want to force him to be, he'll die, he'll be executed as a criminal, a so-called criminal. They'll crucify him. But the irony is that's precisely what must happen. Because in order for Jesus to be the bread of life for us, Jesus must die. Jesus must give his life so that we can have life. So that you and I can have life. So that you and I can have hope. That you and I can have a reason to live. That you and I can have a reason to keep on persevering. That we can have a reason to keep on trusting and, and believing and, and hoping and, and living our lives for him faithfully in this world. And Jesus offers his life to anyone. He offers his forgiveness to anyone and to everyone, each of us, no matter who you are, no matter who you are, no matter your past, no matter what's before you, Jesus offers his life as the bread of life for you and me. He offers it to us today. How many of you had this game growing up? If you grew up in the 1900s, you know what I'm talking about, all right? All right, at least the old version, all right? I didn't have, we didn't have this game but my neighbors did. So I, I can remember, I've got some memories of sitting at my neighbor's kitchen table and uh, playing the game of life. I don't know if you played it or not, if you remember the goal of the game. The goal of the game was basically to accumulate the most money, to gain the most wealth, and you did that by going to college, getting a job, buying insurance, saving for retirement, all the fun things of adulthood, right? Well, you can still buy the game of life today but I don't know if you realize this or not, the game has changed drastically. In fact, over the last 20 years, designers realize that the game uh, that you and I might have grown up with doesn't reflect the life goals, if you would, of the younger generations that have come after us. And so they updated it back in 2007, allowing players to score points for virtuous deeds like saving an endangered species, opening a health food chain, things like recycling. It's true. Here's what's most interesting to me. Instead of the game starting at a point A and you finish at a point B, there's no fixed path. With the game of life today, you decide uh, what works for you. You decide how you want to spend your time. It's up to you to plan out a life that matters. And when asked about all the significant changes to the game, Jill Lepore, writer for The New Yorker, explained, she said, yes, times have changed. And so instead of putting players on a fixed path, designers sought to provide multiple ways to start out in life, but interestingly, no clear place to finish. She went on to say, in reality, it's actually one of the game's best-selling points, and that is that there's no goal. Basically, the game of life is aimless. Can I ask you a question today? What's your life aiming at right now? Do you have a target? Do you have a goal? Do you have confidence in what you're living for today and what you're living for in the future? What are you aiming your life at? What's driving you? Is it a 
desire for a relationship, uh, a marriage? Is it uh, staying healthy, a life free of pain? Is it this motivation to just keep busy? Because if we keep busy, we don't have to focus on the real things that are around us. We put all of our hope in our kids and in our family. You want your kid to go pro. You and I encounter people every day, maybe some of you that are so confused about identity right now that we're willing to go looking anywhere and everywhere for answers. What's Jesus saying here? Saying to us today, Jesus says, I'm the bread. I'm the one you hunger for. I've come to do what you can't do for yourself. I've come to fill the void that you can't fill. I've come to satisfy what you can never satisfy on your own. Most importantly, Jesus says, I've come to die in your place so that through faith in me, your sins can be forgiven and you can experience life today and forever. That's who Jesus is. That's the bread he was offering then and the bread that he offers today. And the question that people 2,000 years ago had to answer is the one we've got to answer. And some did, because if you keep reading, later on in verse 66, you can see it in your own Bibles. I don't have it on the screen for you. It says that a number of the disciples turned away and walked away from him at this point. They just couldn't grasp it. They were content to live an aimless sort of life. But Peter stepped in. He says, well, where would we go, Lord? He says, you have the words of eternal life, Peter. says, we believe and know you are God. So you have both sides, two contrasting responses to Jesus. Here's the question you and I have got to answer. I'm going to ask you to answer is today, do I trust in Jesus as the bread of my life? Because according to Jesus, the only thing we must do in order to receive the gift of eternal life is to believe in him, to trust him, to put our faith in him, to trust in his sacrifice in our place so that we can live through him. Learning to believe that Jesus is the bread of life is good news for all of us. It means that you're not disqualified by your past. Jesus is the bread of life means that you're not expected to earn anything. Like we're not disqualified by expectations that anyone puts on us. No, Jesus invites anyone and everyone to trust him, to come to him. And that means learning to rely on him and trusting that God sent Jesus to die in your place. It's for those of us that have surrendered our lives to him. It means to depend on him for all of our needs every day. It means we come to him as the daily source of hope, no matter what's happening around us. It's, it's learning to surrender to what he wants instead of just thinking about what I want all the time. It means practicing obedience and, and to what he calls us instead of, of kind of pushing our way through. It means we live to please him, that we are living to please him and not anyone else in this world that's finding our identity in him each day instead of trying to create an identity apart from him and trusting in Jesus as our daily bread means that we get to overcome maybe what could be our greatest fear, your greatest fear, and that's the fear of death. Because with Jesus, we don't have to fear death. Because Jesus' death and resurrection means that he has overcome death for us. If you've ever wanted to get right with God, today is your day. Jesus invites us. His invitation to you and for me is believe in me. Trust me. I'm the bread of life. I'm everything you need. Let's pray. God in heaven, we hear your word today. 
but we may need help understanding it. And so would you have your way in us? Would you have your way in this place today and even in this moment, in this room right now, Lord? To answer that question, do I trust Jesus as the bread for my life? And maybe for some of you, you've, you've put your faith and trust in Jesus, but as you look at your life, as you look at your life recently, maybe you see, I, I've been wandering, I've, I've fallen away, I feel distant from God. And Jesus invites you, he invites you, he says, let me be the bread of life. His love is so good, his grace is so good for each of us. And, and maybe for others of you, you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And today can be your day, the day when you do that. To say, Jesus, I trust you as the bread of my life. To pray wherever you are right now, Jesus, you are my everything. You are everything that I need and everything that I hope for. Father, have your way. Have your way in us today. Encourage our hearts. Help us to see Jesus for who he is. And his love for us and what he's done for us and the life that he can give us today and for tomorrow and every day to come, Lord. We trust you. Our faith is in you. You are everything we need. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. We're going to end by celebrating communion together. Don't worry if you didn't pick up communion elements. I'm going to give you time to do that in just a moment as the band's going to lead us in a couple of other songs. I want to look at three more verses with you that are really important from this chapter that have everything to do with what we're going to celebrate as a church family here in just a moment. But they come out of John 6 and verse 53. Again, kind of in the middle of this dialogue, Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. There's a lot of strange in these verses for sure. Like what does Jesus mean by eating his flesh, drinking his blood? I can assure you he's not promoting cannibalism or suggesting that we actually do that. But here's what he's saying. He's looking ahead to the day when he would sacrifice his life, his body, that his blood would shed for the sins of this world. And, and again, a year later from this date, during his final Passover meal with his disciples, Jesus is going to take a piece of bread and break it and say, this is my body given for you. Eat it and remember me. And then he'll take a cup of wine and say, this is the cup this cup represents the new covenant in my blood that is poured out for you. Drink it and remember me. And so here in John 6, when Jesus says, we must eat his flesh and drink his blood, he's foreshadowing the sacrifice of his life in our place. And according to his words, anyone that is willing to receive it, to receive that sacrifice on their behalf will receive the gift of eternal life as a reward from God. Communion is for those of you that have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as the bread of life. And I'm going to invite you as you're ready, if you haven't received them already, the elements are in the back of the room, to take the bread, to take the juice, to remember 
that Jesus gave his life for you. He is our bread of life. He is our victory. Let's celebrate it together today. You eat and take it when you're ready, and we're going to continue to worship as we conclude our service today.